The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Good evening, everybody. It's good to be with you again. Uh, For those of us in the Jewish faith, you know that we have just completed a whole month of holidays, and I won't say that it's good that they're over, but it's good that they're over. I mean, you can't festive all year round, and we take the beginning of the year to start off the year right, and we we just built Sukkot boots in our yard. I just found out that um, more Christians in my town build Sukkot than Jews do, which didn't make me feel so good, but God bless them. So my guest this evening is Dahlia Abraham Klein. She's a published cookbook author, which is not what she's going to talk about. The, the, her first book is called Silk Road Vegetarian, Vegan Vegetarian and Gluten-Free Recipes for the Mindful Cook. That was 2014. And spiritual needing through, that's what a K, spiritual needing through the Jewish months, that was 2015. And this book that she just published, Dahlia, what was it, a week ago? About uh, 10 days ago. Yeah. So my listeners, we have a famous author who just published a book, which you must buy. It's called Necessary Morning. And it takes you along the path from uh, death to life. I was going to say from life to death, but that's not exactly what it does. Um, Although there are some passages that do that. She takes you from death to life and she takes you on the journey. You know, how do we mourn somebody? What are the rituals involved? And what's the reason behind the rituals? She and I were talking a couple days ago. Um, we agreed that there's a ha- there's a how and a why. So there are rituals connected with how Judaism views death and mourning and loss, and we do those. But there's a why behind the how, which is in Hebrew called kavanah. It means intent. It means understanding and bringing it into your own body and soul, why we do the things that we do. So, Dahlia is going to teach us. She's a great teacher. You'll hear as soon as she starts talking. She's a great teacher. So, I uh, 
told Dahlia that I didn't get her book until late this afternoon, and so I didn't get a chance to read all of it, but I will. But I did make some notes, and um, the first question I want to ask you, Dahlia, is about the title. Why did you call it Necessary Morning when you know that most people in America don't find morning necessary? I think that was precisely the reason why I had to title it Necessary Morning, because I felt like we live in a death-defying culture with where we're, we live with suppression of feelings, by, um, with prescription drugs, with plastic surgery to change your facial expression, um, all the suppression with cushioned coffins for the deceased as if they're having a long sleep, sometimes in a suit, um, in formal attire, and I felt like um, it doesn't really bring, those don't really bring you into the reality of death, and in order to really go through mourning, the, the net, in order to live through life, you have to, it, it's necessary to go through the mourning process and not to avoid it and not to dress it up. And that's why I called it Necessary Morning, just precisely not to dress it up, really to feel it. Just like our Bubbies and Zadies really felt it. Yes. Um, you know, when my grandparents, even my parents, because they came from another country, Jewish funerals 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, didn't look like what it does today. Today, um, you know, people knew how to do death. Right. They just knew how to do death. They lived in a community. Everyone just showed up. The, you know, the, the body was washed and taken care of right in the home a lot of the times where the person died, where, where the body laid. Um, and they just knew how to do death. And so somehow through industrialization, through secularization, through uh, families, becoming fragmented, the rituals got lost and secular burial customs kind of took over. And now we call up Jewish funeral homes, really. Or or we adopt, like I said, secular customs. And sometimes we don't know what we're doing. And sometimes we're even doing things that are not really even all that Jewish and got watered down. So my book is really about pluming you right into the mourning process and the rituals, which there are five stages to Jewish mourning, the rituals are designed as benchmarks, really, and self-containers, you know, like frames. And with each benchmark, it opens up to wider opportunities and a wider circle. But at each, each circle, it's containing you and holding you and telling you what is uh, permissible for you to do and not permissible for you to do, but not for the sake of being per- permissible, for, the, for, for your psychological benefit. And I think a lot of people that I've spoken to that are unaffiliated Jews don't really understand the psychological benefit to mourning and to the necess- necessity of it at all, um, which is really why I wrote the book, I felt like it was just missing in our literature. There's so much about, you know, do this and, and, you know, this ritual and do that ritual, but it really didn't 
it was a little bit too dry, and I really wanted to explain the psychological reasons or and through my journey and how I felt and give some life to the mourning process. Uh, I appreciate that, and I agree with you. I know that when I um, am invited to officiate at a funeral who is a non-member of my synagogue, and they're illiterate in the ways of Jewish customs, most traditional Jews know that, for example, we don't do flowers at funerals. Uh, I believe because flowers are beautiful, death is not. Now, death could be the end of suffering and, you know, it could be a blessing in disguise, but it's not pretty. And sometimes I'll go in and I take a look and the coffin is open, which we don't believe in. And the guy, like you say, is dressed in a nice suit and... Um, in a it's not right. It's not, you know, I, I, for me, it's like putting your fingernails across a balloon. It sort of gives me that same look, you know, because I know it's not right. And so I'm glad you wrote this book to teach us what's right and what's not right. Part of the issue I see is that, as I alluded to before, um, sometimes we do the ritual, which is important, because it gives us guidelines and it gives us some bit of control in a, in a place where we lose control, that is, over life and death. So the rituals give us, and everything you mentioned in here talk, speaks to that, that the rituals give us the how, and what you've done is given us the why. I think that's a, a wonderful addition to the grief literature, and I thank you for it. So I want to go ahead. No, I was. I wanted to thank you. I I appreciate that you appreciate that. I do, and and as we know, while nobody likes to talk about grief, more and more people are beginning to talk about grief, and I think that's a good thing. I had a guest on several weeks ago. She talked about what you mentioned. That is, that our and she wasn't Jewish. But she mentioned that our, her, her ancestors, like yours and mine, prepared the body in their home. And they washed them and they, you know, kept dry ice so they wouldn't begin to give an aroma. And then they put the white shrouds on them and they put them in the coffin and boom, they, you know, the guys, the men took them on their shoulders. They walked to the cemetery, which was in most communities right around the corner from them. And that's what they did. And you didn't have to outsource it. And right. yes, you knew how to do death then. When yeah. my daddy died, they didn't let me go to the funeral. They didn't let me or my brother and sister go to the funeral because they didn't, they thought it was too much pain for us. It's, they sanitized it, which is yes. exactly what I'm talking about. Not right. to sanitize it. We're living in a, you can't suppress something that is so universal. Grief. Grief is universal. It's true. And healthy. And, yes. and And necessary. It's a part of life. You know, you look at an echocardiogram, there's peaks and valleys. There's ups and downs. It's not uh, a straight line. So they yeah. sanitize it, which was exactly the, you know, when I hear that, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And that's really what I take issue with. And I've seen those types of funerals. And, um... It feels just too sanitized. It, 
it, there, there's so much to cover um, in this book. You know, when you say that, it makes me think about when I've been to Shiva's where the mourner is the host. And I talk about that in my book. Often I'll, I, I've seen, unfortunately, that at the Shiva, the host becomes the, the, the host. There's my slip. The mourner becomes the host. And really it's about the mourner becoming a guest in their own home and letting your community come to you. Really, and, and you're the one that needs to be taken care of, not the other way around and scurrying around and making sure, you know, did you have your bagel and lox and did you find your soda on the table over there? It, re- it really is about sitting, Shiva, Shiva, which is coming from the number seven, which is the completion number, it's seven days of creation, but la shevet in Hebrew, which means to sit, and the word sheva, it's really sitting in the reality of it, but not scurrying around. And that's the reason, you know, part of the reason why we sit low on the stools during shiva is, you know, and, and how I took it was very metaphoric. Um, sitting low to the ground was like a way of kind of like being close to my dad, who was like just buried and he's in the belly of earth. And it's almost like you're, you, you want to be close to it. Yeah. Um, that, and also, I wasn't in. The, that was one way that I saw it, and the other way was, you know, when you're sitting low, you're not at the same emotional charge as you are when you're sitting in a regular chair. You know, there, you're demarcating the time. It is not. Um, you're going through a complete chaos that week. It's an intense week, and just. The, the week and how the, the, the Shiva house looks, emulates, and helps you to become the part. And, it, and I write about in the book how it reminded me of like method acting where you kind of like need to dress the part to get into the part. Mm, and that's yeah. kind of like what the Shiva house needs to look like. The Shiva house needs to emulate that. It needs to emulate the feel and the look of where you're supposed to be at. And the reason why, the sh- you know, we cover the mirrors, and I think if people understand why, you know, you're covering the mirror so that you're focusing inwards. You know, when you're looking at a mirror, you're, focus- you're focusing on yourself. And really this is the time to cover the mirror and really focus on what is your life about now? I mean, this is really the time that you question life. Now that you lost someone close to you, what is this life about for me? And you can't do that if you're staring at yourself, but you kind of like have to kind of close yourself into this darkness. Um, And so the Shiva house kind of like emulates that and helps to spur that for you. I I remember um, I was talking, I was teaching about covering the mirrors and somebody said, why do we cover the mirrors? What's wrong with, with, with uncovering the mirrors? And you know, cause you got to look good. I said, no, you do not like got to look good. It's not about you. It's about your, about your daddy or your mommy or your sister or brother or somebody, but it's not about you. And so don't waste your time thinking about how you look. It's, right. it's, it's not about you. Now, you know that this past week we finished reading the Torah and Moses, Moses died. And nobody knows where he's buried. 
So a, a, a wonderful teacher of mine at medical school said, gentlemen, because when I was there, it was only gentlemen. Gentlemen, why do you think nobody knows where Moses is buried? And of course, the official reason is because he could not, should not become an icon. You right. shouldn't go to his grave and, you know, pray that you get pregnant. Right. There's no special, there, there's no special power to Moses. The other thing he said, this rabbi said, you know, we can die, but our important missions do not die with us. And Moshe could die because he knew he had Yoshua to f- fulfill the mission. And I always think of it that way. You know, when I die, I'm gone. But the people who have learned from me and, and learned about grief, they're still around. So I'm really not gone. I'm still here. Right. And I told them if they make a mistake, I'm coming back and getting them. <laughs> it's, it's, you have to, you have to remember the difference between life and death. You mentioned one of the ways that we refer to the dead is niftar. Would you talk about that a little bit? So niftar means um, actually uh, call off end of duty. The niftar is kind of like the end of duty. So um, when we talk about, and it's basically the the physical duty in this world, um, this is also part of, this leads me to many different things. This is also part of the reason why when you're, you're in the company of a body that is dead, you are, only, you are not allowed to study Torah. You are supposed to be saying psalms, comforting psalms. Um, you are not allowed to pass something over the body. And the reason is, is because that body that served its duty can no longer is no longer in a physical container and it's now in a state actually when it leaves the body a bit in disarray and bewilderment because it no longer has a physical body out of respect for the body that can no longer function and has been called back to duty which is what Nistar is to be called back to duty um, out of respect we don't do physical things in front of the body, not to cause more grief. And that is how much respect we give to a dead body, to a niftar, when it's called back to duty. And our obligation is, because they are no longer in their physical body, it is our responsibility to carry on their physical deeds. And, and the year is designed through the rituals to engrave that person into you so that you become the physical body. You manifest. You know, I write about how it's very customary to give charity when someone dies, you know, right. a year score to give charity. And I thought about this, and there was something very poignant for me when giving charity. My father was a very charitable person, and the, don't, the charities lost the donor, basically, when my father died. So in order to carry on the legacy so that they wouldn't lose a donor, I felt the responsibility to continue to give on his behalf. Right. That's the beauty of how we continue life. And when you see it that way and you start to be very mindful of the mourning process and the psychological insights 
that are to be gained from mourning. First of all, not only is it comforting because you don't feel the person is so far away because truthfully you can embody them within you. You know, I also talk about in the book how every time I get into my car, I always have the radio on. So during the year of Avelut, which Avel, you know, you're an Avel for the year when you're mourning for a parent, it's for a year. You're called an Avel, which actually means withdrawal. So during that year, every time I got into my car, I didn't have the radio on. And the thing is this, is that the silence and the fact that I was doing something different for that year actually brought me closer to my father through the void. Yep. Danya, we got to take a break. We will continue when we when we get back. Uh, everybody stay with us because Donna and I have more, lots more to talk about. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Okay, we're back. I'm back. This is Rabbi Mel, and the show is called From Morning to Morning, and that's what it's about. And so this week, my guest is Dania Abraham Klein, who has written last week, by the way, 10 days ago, the book called Necessary Morning, which leads you on the path. Um, her like subtitle 
is healing the loss of a parent through Jewish ritual. And we've been talking about those Jewish rituals and what they mean and why we do them and, and all that. So, uh, Dalia, I wanted to ask you, you had talked about the Meal of Condolence. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, so it's called the Meal of Consolation. And the first thing, the first thing that we do upon entering the Shiva house is sit down to a Meal of Condolence. And it's prepared, and it's, you're not the one preparing it. The mourner is not the one preparing it. All food for the week, by the way, is prepared either by friends or family. And um, the meal is prepared for you before you enter the Shiva house. And tip- the typical meals, which are allusions, are a round bread, which symbolizes the, the cycle of life, uh, a hard-boiled egg, uh, sometimes lentils that are eaten by Sephardim. You know, the hard-boiled egg and the lentils, it doesn't have any stem, and they are smooth surfaces. They have no opening, no closing, no mouth to speak. You know, it's not like there's an orange where there's a stem. That's not, that's not what mm-hmm. we eat typically. Um, and there are many different customs relating to the symbolic foods eaten. The, mo- the, the meal is eaten silently because you just came in from this hard process of burying someone you love, someone in your family, and you kind of like, it's, it's the kind of meal... It's the meal of sustenance because it's the, the reason why you're eating that meal is to ground you. It's at a time when you don't want to eat. It's precisely what you don't want to do. But it's really to ground you and immediately to, 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 to nourish the, the body so that the soul, the soul stays in the body. Because, you know, in, in a drastic situation, somebody wants to throw themselves into... Um, into the grave sometimes. It's a way really to sustain life, to, and that's the reason why um, it's really to affirm life and to live. Um, also, the, the eating, the first thing, it reengages the mourner. It's kind of like it almost a little bit is like a smelling salt. It, mm. it grounds you. It brings you back to the reality. And that's the reason why that we have that first meal. That's the first thing that you do when you enter into the Shiva house is you sit down and you eat silently. And by the way, silence is a very big factor during that Shiva week, during that intense week, which I only learned about as I was writing about this book. And then I realized actually it was intrinsic in me. But I don't know, Mel, did you know that? That silence was Oh, I did not know that. It was, it, when, it I read your, when I read your story about being on the plane and sitting between the two guys and you just sort of drifted off. Yes. And that was good for you because that's what you needed. But I never heard, because I've never been to a ship in 45 years, ever, that's silent. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. No. I know. It, do, it really doesn't happen. But ritual says that typically the first three days are supposed to be in silence. Mm-hmm. Now, most of us are not afforded that opportunity. It's true. It's, but when I was doing my research for the, for the book, and I realized, you know, when my father died and I had the, in, the initial shock of it, which, by the way, that first stage is called onen, which means deep despair, um, I, you feel like the world is spinning, and you kind of just want to... And you, you, Everything sounds like chatter. You're just like, shh, quiet. And the reason for the silence, for the first three days of silence that I learned about is 
Because often I've been guilty. I walk into a shiva house and you kind of like it, getting yourself prepared to emulate how you think you should be behaving or acting or saying, but you don't know the circumstance of the mourner. Death is not devastating for every single mourner because it depends on the situation. Sometimes the parent was very old, had a great life, and automatically you walk into a shiva house and we think, oh, it's a terrible tragedy. Some, everybody deals with it differently. So the silence is designed for you as the mourner to process it on your own first without being bombarded with other people's feelings about how you should be feeling or how you ought to be feeling. So it's a way kind of like deal with your grief alone for, you know, when you have a problem, sometimes you just need, generally I'm speaking, when you have a problem, sometimes you just need the quiet just to figure this out by yourself without so much noise. Let me process this for a second by myself. And that's what the silence is about. And then after three days, that's when the consolers come and they take you out of that silence. And that's when it's prescriptive at that point for them to come and visit you and for them to grab you out of that silence and to re-engage you. And now, now that you've processed the death somewhat in your silence, now you're integrating it with the consolers. And they come to, to help you. Really, and you accept them as, as you know, as a nice home cook meal. You know, that's how you accept them. Right. And uh, and that's and that was a beautiful process, and it completely made sense to me because I went through a silence mode because I my father died in New York. I was in London traveling with my husband. I had to go to Israel, which is where my father was being buried. We were all coming from all four corners of the world to bury my father in Israel. My son was in Thailand on vacation with my brother. Um, So the only silence time that we had to process it was in the airplane, kind of like, and, and I just shut down. And it was not conscious. It just was. And I allowed it to move at its own velocity. I didn't have anybody asking me any questions, um, and it, it just felt like it was the right thing for me. So you needed it. You, you, Dahlia, needed it. Yes, I needed Forget it. Forget anybody else. You, yourself, needed it in order to, to, like you said, process it. Yeah, and I think that, like you said, you and I have probably been to Shiva's where it's uh, a cocktail party sometimes. Right. And, um... The you food is good. Did I mean, someone I really die? <laughs> you can even, you know, I've, I've been to, and I talk about in the book, I've been to a shiva where there was actually music. And I write about it in this tragic comic kind of way, how I felt like I was on the sinking Titanic in the last yeah. scene where they play the right. classical music as the, as the ship is sinking. But, but why? Why can't we feel pain? Because know, nobody ever told taught us how to do that. You're right. Nobody ever, society doesn't teach us, our parents don't teach us, nobody teaches us, because nobody teaches us how to lose anything, especially well, loved ones. That, you know, it's true that we live in a society. You go to Macy's, they have sales. Buy, 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 spend, spend, spend. Right. You look more beautiful than you ever did before, they say. Okay, so we know how to spend, and we know how to increase our 
wardrobe and all that, but we don't know how to get rid of things. And, and that, I believe, is one of the main pieces of all this. Nobody, nobody, and, and I always use the image of, if I walked into your office and I saw your desk piled high with files and books, that's what I'm talking about. It's not just with death, it's in business, it's in life, it's in, it's in everything. I mean, I'm guilty. I have 3,800 Facebook friends. Now, do you think I know 3,800 people? Of course not. But, okay. You know, maybe it'll help me get famous someday. I don't know. 3,800. Yeah. Go ahead. Um. I agree with you that we probably were not taught how to grieve and um, you have to see it. I was kind of fortunate or unfortunate to see the traditional way of seeing Avel and the Shiva, you know, the year of mourning, because I come from a very traditional family. But I wrote this book for most people that really don't know why to mourn, how to mourn, what is the value in it? And the truth is, is the other reason I wrote the book is because when you don't mourn, it, it colors your life. It festers in every single aspect of your life. And I, and I write about some vignettes in the book where grief just creeps up on you. And that's why the Jewish ritual in its psychological brilliance is really about facing death. But when you say letting go... Sorry? Sorry? Go ahead. It's not about, it's not about it's not letting about, go, but no, the year but is really about engraving, engraving the person into you, embodying them into you, yes. not pretending like they're on a vacation, not pretending they're on a long sleep, but valuing their life. And how do you value their life? By carrying some of them with you. And that is eternal. And I think what I learned through the mourning process is that if there is a rainbow at the end of mourning, it's immortality. Mm. That's what I learned. I talk to my people a lot about what they think happens after physical death. And, you know, it's um, a lot of people still believe that there is a physical place called heaven and a physical place called hell. And if they, if that's what they believe, I support them. I, I don't believe that. I believe that you live on in memories and life lessons and legacies. So I don't, I don't, my job is not to tell them what's right because nobody knows what's right. My job is to, is to comfort them. And that's what I try to do. I've had many failed. I had a, I had a guy who died five years ago, another congregation or 10 years ago, another congregation and his wife was just so depressed and in the, in the hospice room, she kept yelling at him, Sai, don't die, don't die. Well, poor Sai, who I think died because he could. So Sai dies. And she's so upset, she starts banging on his chest. Sai, come back. I need you. Come back. Well, she finally figured out. And I, so I said, to myself, okay, you're the rabbi, say something, <laughs> do something intelligent. You can't leave her alone like this. And the family was there, and they didn't know what to do either. 
So I took her in my arms and I said, you know, I believe that Cy will be with his parents. Um, it was a little bit weird, and, it's, and the hospice people who were standing outside heard all the laughter because I broke the tension, and everybody was laughing hysterically, which was really the tension, you know, of, of Cy's death. And, all the, and I heard afterwards when I left that they're all thinking, who is that crazy rabbi? Daddy dies at the age of 87, and everybody's laughing hysterically. But it made sense to me, you know, whatever makes sense to you makes sense. That's how I feel. Right, right. I want to talk about um, Minion and saying Kaddish. Yeah, that's a very important one. I think it's critical. It's critical. Yeah, so teach us about it. So... Kaddish, the interesting thing about Kaddish is it's said for, you know, Kaddish is co- it's called the mourner's prayer. Um, it's in Aramaic. It's a kind of poem. It has a very uh, m- melodic, rhythmic tone to it. Yeah. The, the, um, it's said three times a day by the mourner, and it has nothing to do with death, but it is called the mourner's prayer. And uh, it makes no reference to death or mourning. Really, what the, what the poem is about, it is a, a poem that reminds us that God is beyond us, understanding is beyond us, holiness and beauty are all around us, but we all have work to do. It really is about, like, here we are exalting God in the Kaddish prayer, in the mourner's prayer. And it doesn't talk, because really what it is about is, it's, it's about um, having faith. This was meant to be, um, not losing faith. And the interesting thing about the Kaddish is, is the mourner is the one that is the leader. So you would think, here is the mourner. The last thing he wants to do now is get up and now lead a congregation in the Kaddish. But actually, it is... First of all, his way of being singled out and for the community to know that this person is a mourner, so there is more sympathy for this person. And also, just when you feel like you're having doubt in God or, or, or faith because exactly. this person was taken away from you, you have to get up and the community is relying on you. That's the beauty of Kaddish as well. And the community responds, Amen. And the mourner goes on with the Kaddish. And it's kind of like this sing-song. It almost sounds like a, yep. like a ping-pong, a rhythmic. It's all right. Right. It, sort of, it, it, it puts you to sleep in a sense and lets you relax so you can concentrate on the words. Correct. And so you're right. If, when you're angry with God or you're angry with people, you go to services for, you know, however long your services, and you're part of this, as we talked about, this secret club that you got to, unfortunately, you got to be invited to. And the only way you get invited to is if, I mean, not the only way, but most people go to synagogue for daily minion, go there because they're saying Kaddish for somebody. So that that saying of Kaddish can strengthen them and lessen their anger, if you will, at God, who, you know, they could say, well, why did God do this to me? Well, we don't know, but we pray to God, and it can lessen your anger at other people. Maybe you're angry at 
his friends, why did they come see him at the end of his life or, or who knows? We got to take a break, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say. So we will be right back. Don't go away. Dahlia, Abraham, Klein, and I are not finished yet. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit griefok.com. Again, that's griefok.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hello, everybody. Rabbi Mel back with my good friend and, and my guest, Donna Abraham Klein, who just wrote a book that was published only 10 days ago. We give you the best and the latest here on From Morning to Morning. We don't talk about books that are 30 years old. We talk about books that are 10 years old, 10 days old. I hope you appreciate that, my friends. Anyway, we were talking about the Kaddish, which is a hymn of praise to God, and and the interesting dichotomy of somebody who could be angry at God and yet comes to the synagogue because he has to, and not only does he come and be part of that secret club called the Minion, the prayer service, uh, which is a secret group of mourners, many of whom stick around after their time of saying Kaddish is over. They help to support future mourners, but they have to lead the service. Now, some of them do it every night. Some of them don't do it every night, but it doesn't matter. To get up in front of a congregation and lead them in prayers you know, is pretty awesome when you think that a week ago you were angry at the world because your daddy died. Uh, what else, Dolly? What else you got to say about Kaddish? Um, I think that, well, in the first week, it's important to, to remind our listeners, in the first week, you don't leave the house to say Kaddish. The community comes to you. Right. So in the first week, because this isn't the time to, in that, in that week of intense mourning, in that shiva, that week you're home. 
Um, and the reason why it's designed that way is because you're not supposed to be bothered with how you dress and how you look and, and about your food preparation. The community is supposed to come and help you. Now, the beauty about Kaddish is, let's say you don't belong to a community. So anywhere you go, anywhere in the world, you can, you can just look up mykaddish.com, which is in the back of my book and the resources. You can find a Kaddish anywhere in the world, and you just walk in there. The minute they see you leading a Kaddish, and in reciting the mourner's prayer, everyone knows that you're in mourning, and there is a there is a um, consolation there. There is sympathy there, um, and so it's important, you know. So in the first week, the community comes to you, and thereafter, you go to synagogue, and you're supposed to say Kaddish three times a day, and it's kind of like an instant community. And you find yourself and you realize that, you know, something that to live as a Jew is to be, to live in a community and it really helps and there's so much beauty to having a community bolster you and help you through. And really that's how Judaism in general has survived thousands of years. We're one of the oldest civilizations and it's partly because we lived in communities. And that's also the beauty of Kaddish, so I think it's important for um, our listeners to know that it's kind of like a way of to have an instant community when you don't belong to one. And then all of a sudden from there it can grow, and you can say, you know something, Judaism has a lot of psycho- psychological insights that are valuable to me, uh, um, that make me feel safe and secure in the rituals. And something about the, doing the rituals also, you know, Sigmund Freud um, he, he said that rituals are very healthy for you because it can rewire the brain, you know, and, and for positive, for positive, when it's done for positive things, it can rewire the brain. And, um, and that's what you want to do also. You want to get yourself out of the funk. Uh, and this is a way also to help you. The rituals are like benchmarks to help you also. So I think that's what's important about Kaddish, um, there is, a, you know, there's a beauty of unity there. It creates a wellspring of support. And even when the mourner is absent, by the way, you know, someone that's been there regularly, so all of a sudden the community is like, okay, where is he? Where is this person or she? And You're they important. look out for you because you've, you've become the fabric of this community. And that's also the beauty of, you know, that's just a byproduct of saying Kaddish. You know, we were so talking we, before about why things are not the same as they were in terms of Jewish ritual. In terms of saying Kaddish, we don't live near each other anymore. We don't live, you know, I don't even know my next door neighbor. And I don't live in a Jewish neighborhood. There is no Jewish neighborhood in this town. And when there was, you know, you could observe Shabbat together and you could observe the holidays together. And if you had to go to Shul to say Kaddish, you knew that you had friends who would go with you because that's what a community is about. Today, unfortunately, when we live all over the place, it's harder to create that. Yes. And the other thing that I wanted to just just mention, and you mentioned in your book, is that the whole process is a gradual process. You know, you, you come, it's like when somebody comes to my show for the first time, they sit in the back row. Now, the reason they sit in the back row is not because 
Um, they want to be closer to the food that comes after the service. That's not the reason, although I laugh with them about it. But because they're scared, they don't know what's going on. They're not, you know, and so little by little when I see them moving up from the back row, I know that something is happening inside of them. Well, it's the same thing with saying Kaddish and going to Minyan. You know, when you first go, you may not know any Hebrew. You may not know anything. You can't conduct a service. You just can't do it. But but little by little, you learn it. You listen to other people and you find yourself tutors and you and so by the end of 11 months you're a pro and which means that you, you can teach other people to do it and so the process goes on i love and that's that the beauty of our religion also it's a father to son it's a right. father to son you know the oral tradition was typically trans, uh, transcribed father to son and that's really and it was and it was learning and it was living the life of a jew it was just living the life of a Jew. It just, it just was. And what you're saying is very true. That you know everybody. And then slowly, slowly, um, you learn more each time. You you know with each passing day, you learn more right. and more, and the community embraces you, and hopefully you have more interest to learn what it has to offer you. And and it could be a, an an opening to that learning. So right. let's, sure let's you have there's a class that takes place after Minion is over. Right. So you could figure, well, I'm already here. I might as well stay. And then you're on your way. And then, I mean, that's the wonderful thing, that from death comes life. Yeah. Death is, I like to say, the greatest gift that God ever gave us. If nobody died, nobody would ever learn anything. Because, well, why should we? What's the point? Right. If, if we don't value die, life. You should be you should be scared of that, and you should try to fill every single day with as much wisdom and knowledge and learning and and words of Torah as you possibly can. Now, I want to ask you a little bit deeper question that has to you has to do with you. You in a, you've written a wonderful book and you've talked about the how and the why. So, my question to you is twofold. One, um, how did you feel? When this book was finished, and second, what does Dahlia Abraham Klein believe is going to happen to her when she dies? Hmm. I felt um, it's always sad to end a book. I have to tell you, there is a little bit of sadness because it's it's a baby that you're letting go, right. but it's the baby that you have to let go. Because you brought the baby into the world to do something fruitful. That's the reason why I wrote this book, so that it should be impactful. Um, so it, there is always a little bit of sadness to cl- closing down, you know, a book. But you have to let go and you have to let it do its work. Um, Donya, that's exactly what grief is. Yeah. You're describing what you write about. Yeah, that's exactly. So there is an element you know, the of is, the book is your loved one, and then you have to lay it gently down and move on. You, you you just do. You just got to, and you've got to believe that you did the best you could do. Right. The, the wonderful thing about writing a book, though, as opposed to people and interpersonal relationships, is you can you are the author of your book. Yep. As opposed to interpersonal relationships, which are so much more complicated. 
Of course. You have to um, look at you as well as the book. Now tell me, because we've got four minutes till we have to say goodbye, what do you think is going to happen to you and your soul? I know it's going to happen to you. You're going to be buried in the ground and, and covered with dirt in a pine box, and that's what's going to happen to your body. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what happens to your soul. What do you think will happen to your soul when you leave? Well, I can only say that I hope that uh, I hope when I leave this world that my soul has really that my body has fulfilled its duty and my soul it will I think it's very strange but I feel like with my father I feel like whenever I think of him I feel like I'm calling him down. So mm. I feel like he's up in the celestial planes somewhere. Right. I can't tell you where, but I feel like the way that I bring him down is when I do something that I know embodies him or, or is characteristic of him. And, um, and I feel that we can just bring, draw, draw our loved ones down just by thinking about them. Yes. And there's this kind of like glow. And I have to say, you know, um, I hope that I've had an, impact, an impacting life here. I hope that my life meant something. I hope that, you know, I believe that everybody's here to do something. We all have a job here to do. We all got to figure out what it is. Generally, I believe it's to elevate this world. I hope that's what I've done. And I I believe that my soul, you know, somewhere is some, you know, is, is an energy that can always be drawn down. It's somebody and hopefully my loved ones that I've impacted have, have, and and they and I and I'll always be close to them and hopefully they'll remember you and they'll emulate emulate what you stood for. I, I know that for me every yeah. time I see every time I see Yisker, and the time comes for the individual paragraphs, I close my eyes and I bring up in my mind all of my twelve aunts and uncles, my first wife and my best friend who died in an airplane crash, and I see them. I can actually see them. And I say to them, you know, I want you to know I'm okay, I'm happy, I'm joyful, and thank you for all that you gave to me. Mm. And that's the best I can do. I don't know, you know, uh, it's complicated. Well, you know, the thing, the beauty of what you just said is that you're in a state of gratitude. Yes, and in Judaism, you know, when we say all our blessings, our blessings are not because God needs our blessings. He does not need our blessings. Right. Our blessings are to always keep us in a state of gratitude and a humility. And thank you for everything that I have. It's not necessarily because God needs... That's the other thing that gets convoluted. People think, oh, I'm blessing him for everything. It's not that he needs it. And just what you said, it's really about being in a state of gratitude. Thank you for what I have. And when you're in that state, first of all, you're magnetic. You know, it's definitely a magnetic quality for someone that's in a state of gratitude. There's humility to that. I don't want to stop you, but we got to go. Okay. So listen, if... If my listeners want to get a hold of me, you write me at Rabbi Mel at griefok.com. Dahlia, if they want to get a hold of you, what do they do? The best way to, well, if you want to find me, um, the best way is through 
looking at my Amazon author page under Dahlia Abraham Klein, and my book is titled Necessary Morning, Healing the Loss of a Parent Through Jewish Ritual. I am filled with gratitude, darling, for you, from you, that you have come and taught us and introduced some concepts that are so important and help us live our lives so that we can eventually leave them and have an impact. So thank you so much, Dahlia. Thank we'll you for having me. Talk again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to have you, and we'll do it again sometimes. My listeners, we're out of here, but we'll be back next week. At least I will, anyway. <laughs> I'll, I'll have a good week, and come back and listen to more next week on From Morning to Morning. Bye. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.